There's got to be an explanation to all these UFO sightings, right? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. Welcome to the newest episode of Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. I'm your host, Jason Fraley, picking the brains of the top filmmakers, musicians, and artists of our time. Rock and Roll Hall of Famer Jerry Harrison of Talking Heads performs live at Lincoln Theater in Washington, D.C. this Thursday night. He joined me to discuss the band's biggest hits, including Psycho Killer, Life During Wartime, Take Me to the River, Once in a Lifetime, and Burning Down the House. Hey, Jerry Harrison. Hey, thank you so much for joining us on WTOP in D.C. It's a delight to be here. And of course, we should tell everyone we're talking to you, the the Rock and Roll Hall of Famer of Talking Heads, uh, because you are coming to the Lincoln Theater here in D.C. on Thursday, June 22nd, along with Adrian of King Crimson and then a long history with Talking Heads as well. Uh, How did this uh, reunion of you two begin with to launch this tour? Didn't it start like during the pandemic, like 2021, you reunited uh, for like a remaining light tour and you just sort of kept it going? Well, it. It began years before that because Adrian and I had kept in touch and actually had lived in a, we both had lived in Wisconsin for a while. He was at a recording studio down in Lake Geneva that at one time was probably had the most equipment of any recording studio in the, in the world. And I, <laughs> I grew, grew up in Milwaukee and I used to go down and use that studio and, um, basically because it was a great deal as well as a great studio. So Adrian and I just kind of kept in touch and he would play on my solo records and played on the Crash Test Dummies album and just other things that I, you know, that I, that I did. And then I happened to be going to Nashville where he moved with the movie I did, Take Me to the River, about Memphis music. I'm not sure if you're aware of that. Nice. But it's a fantastic movie. I recommend it to everybody. Great documentary. And we kept talking about how we just had such fun on the tour in 1980, which, of course, was in support of, of Remain in Light, the album that Adrian had been played such a wonderful solos on. And we we just uh, said, how are we going to do this? And I had produced the band Turquoise, and I called up Adrian and said, I think I found a solution. These guys sort of talking heads was the inspiration for them making the, uh, making this band and they know a lot of the songs and to a degree we can just join them and we uh so we did and they then after 2021 we were supposed to start in 2020 but the pandemic of course reared its uh, head and then we spent 2021 and 2022 fulfilling sort of the festivals that we were going to do uh in 2020 and, you know, well, unfortunately, we were in Nashville the year that the play Bonnaroo, the year that it flooded. So we missed that one. And this year we decided, well, let's go out and do a, a theater tour and, and go and play some, uh, do our own shows and 
It's been great. I mean, a year ago, we played five shows in five days. And this, I mean, this year we played five shows in five days. And a year ago, we played five shows in the year. And you get a little bit tighter when you play five shows in five days. So Maybe. we're having that experience of just playing every day. And uh, it's grueling and tiring. I haven't done this in 25 years. So it's a challenge, but it's, it's a wonderful challenge. And it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, a quarter century of uh, of of a break from touring. So you're back out there now. Is is it's like you know it's like riding a bike. Maybe a little rust, but you're shaking it off, and it'll be the rust will be off by the time we get to see you. <laughs> um, That's right. That's right. So it's I and but I believe you are calling it the remaining like tour. Like uh, so, is it mostly songs from that famous Talking Heads album? Is there any other Talking Heads stuff? Any King Crimson stuff? I'm trying to get an idea of the set list without you know spoiling it, but just a a, a, a general sense. Well, I get. We took uh, the, the show in Rome as the blueprint. So that's had all of these sort of up-tempo songs from Remain in Light. You know, we were playing audiences where we didn't feel a song like The Overload was really, if it was a totally sit-down theater audience, you know, maybe during the entire album would have been the appropriate thing to do. And then we included songs from our earlier records. So we're including... You know, a song like Life During Wartime and Psycho Killer um, and some and some others from that were that we did on that in the show in 1980. Then we decided, well, you know, we should uh, give a little respect to what we've done for the last <laughs> 25 or well, well, more than that, the last 40 years. So yeah. both uh, Adrian and I are doing uh, a song that we chose. I'm doing Rev It Up and he's doing Thelahun. Genji from Discipline. And then finally, we wanted to have a song that focused on the band that has joined us. And they had been doing Slippery People. And I had produced Slippery People. And I hadn't produced it, but I played with Mavis Staples, who recorded Slippery People. And as a co-writer, I was very excited to not only play with her, but that she was doing it. Yeah. And so we're doing that, but with the the two women singers in the band um, singing that song. One of the main things we really wanted to do is we're split up the vocal duties and we make it about, uh, you know, playing to different strengths, but about the interplay of different people. This person does this and this person does that and not so focused on a single lead person. It's about the music, these songs, and about the joy that they bring and not about the... uh, you know, one person expressing their their personality for an you know for nine for ninety minutes. Uh, it's better that way. I, smart decision. I love it. Um, well, you mentioned a few seconds ago that you know you were you were born in Milwaukee. Um, I always love to remind our listeners how this whole thing began. Like I know you were previously in the Modern Lovers, um, and then folks here in the DC area, of course, you know know David Burns' backstory. I mean, obviously born in Scotland, but grew up in our Arbutus, Maryland, Lansdowne High School. So, how does that meeting happen? If you're from Milwaukee and Burn is coming up around here in Arbutus, Maryland, uh. Um, where did you meet up with those guys? Was it you were in college? They, I was p- past college and I'd already been in the Modern Lovers. And the Modern Lovers record, which ended up being the demos we recorded to make what was supposed to be the record. Uh, music we recorded in the spring of 1972 eventually got re- released on, on Berserkly Records in the beginning of 1976. 
And it was sort of a blueprint for the sort of burgeoning punk movement because it espoused the same ideas. I always think that we were the one of the great precursors to punk or a, well, you could even say we were one of the first punk bands uh, because it was yeah, all you about- You paved the way, baby. <laughs> yeah, we were all about short and sweet and sort of standing as an alternative to prog rock and that every, you know, the musicians who would talk about how they had been in the academy and solos and light shows that went on for 20 minutes and things like that. Ours was about short, sweet songs that you really felt uh, felt strongly connected to. I I think one of the ethos of punk was you may not be the best musician, but you will find a way to express what you need to express. And that will be that's sufficient, and and usually it will be quite unique. Sometimes because you don't know how to play your instrument, so you find no ways of use of sort of uh, playing an interrupting noise to uh, to to make get the point across. I mean, you and it was a very you know it was a really fascinating time, a time that I think that the scene that developed around CBGBs in particular was really special. Uh, I always think that many of these movements that we all uh, think of so fondly, there was a club or two that helped make them happen. And it usually was a place that the musicians hung out when they weren't playing. And usually it's because the owner would let them in for free and maybe even give them a drink or two. So, you know, you think of there were clubs in Seattle around the grunge scene. There was things going on in Akron when that, when that, in Cleveland, when that happened. And in Athens, Georgia, there was something like that. So CBGB's was absolutely crucial and absolutely this would not have happened without uh, the support that having that club gave and the generosity, I think of Hilly Crystal to basically give the band the door with a slight tax to help pay for the PA and he took the bar, and he was okay with that. And I think, as you know, bands today often have to pay to play, have to guarantee there will be a certain amount of people there, will have to do uh, various things. So uh, people don't do it. And the clubs, you know, it's it's less expensive and less hassle to have a DJ or even just recorded music. And so... I feel fortunate to have grown up in the time when those scenes could develop. Oh, so lucky. And we, well, all of us are lucky that you were at, you know, at that time in history to, for that all to be falling in, into place together. Well, I mean, you think about the black cat in uh, Washington, DC, how, yeah. you know, and the five thirty club were really nine 930, 930 club. Yeah. Which I played a few times at both locations. I remember someone had gotten shot there like the night before I went one time and the, the you know they provided a sort of comforting yet edgy environment <laughs> for <laughs> which which made everyone who had discovered them and know, know about them to feel like a little special that they were going there because they knew about it and the friends you met there you trusted them to a degree because they knew about it too and uh so you know uh, yeah, it was a wonderful time. I mean, you can go back a little earlier to the swinging 60s in London and the Marquee Club and other things like that. This is not, or 53rd Street in New York during the jazz era. This is, 
tried and true way of, of a scene developing and great musicians. And hopefully, one of the things that was so important about the Modern Lovers is that we were, uh, not the Modern Lovers, but the CBGB scene, is that most of the bands were so ignored by the record companies that they uh, didn't get signed immediately, and therefore they um, weren't quite competing with each other. When they started, when we all started going all around the world or all around the country, then competition came in and it was a less homogeneous and supportive scene. But there was a moment where everyone just kind of said, we think what all of our bands are doing here is the most important music in the world. And we also think that every one of them has their unique thing. They're not, we're not, we're not competing with the Ramones. We don't sound anything like the Ramones. We're not competing with Blondie. We're not. They each have something special. So it was great. I, I, I think everyone that was there will like look back, look back, looks back on it with a great deal of fondness. Oh, absolutely. Because you all were sort of in on it together. You know, every all the fans of those clubs and the bands that played it, it was almost like your own little secret that then exploded out into the rest of the world to, to figure it out. Exactly. Um, I'm Bradley Trainer, And I'm Don McClain. We have a podcast called Blinded by the Item. A blind item is gossip about a celebrity with their name left out. It's a guessing game and you can play along. The item might be like, this A-list star carries a Birkin bag worth more than the average person's house to the gym to work out. Pretty sure that's J-Lo. And P.S. The person behind all of this is Chris Jenner, LLC. We drop a new episode every weekday so the fun never ends. Blinded by the Item. Listen wherever you get podcasts and watch us on the Blinded by the Item YouTube channel. Well, awesome. Well, thank you so much for going so deep into those early days. I, I want to go into the I, I got to ask about, you know, Psycho Killer on that first album, Talking Head 77. Uh, memories of, of recording that because you had just joined the band. I guess the band like kind of formed with Burn and everybody maybe a year or two earlier. But, you know, you joined in 77 and right for the in time for that album. So tell me about recording Psycho Killer. That bass, that opening bass line is like pretty ominous. And of course, we all remember the fa fa fa, you know, better run right yeah. away. But but uh, yeah, any memories of of putting that one actually together well there is an important thing so we were we were recording it with tony bon jovi was our producer who was known for doing things like disco star wars so he was about as far away from the punk scene as you could get but that's kind of why we <laughs> chose him and but there were moments where he sort of didn't get us and we had done a version with a cello that was quite a bit softer that I think is available on one of our hidden tracks on greatest hits albums or something like that. <laughs> you with can a, find it somewhere on one of those. There's an artist <laughs> named Arthur Russell who, who actually went on to quite a bit of notoriety, particularly in England. I don't know if you know him, but yeah. really interesting guy. And that was the song. And then we went on tour and we were closing with Psycho Killer. And of course we played it far more as an aggressive more to the probably the most distorted rock song we with the possible addition of memories can't wait that the talking ants ever did and we came back and i said tony this is just not the version you know the version is what we're doing live we have to re-record this which we did and then of course it became the single from that record so that was an important i'm glad we went away to sort of learn from our audience that no 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 that kind of quirky cool, interesting way of doing it is not the way to do it. And just Tony, to clarify, we got to tell everyone that, that Tony Bon Jovi is the cousin of John Bon Jovi, right? 
Yes, he is. Yes, as well as the builder of the power station, the famous recording studio in New York. It is a small world. Well, it's a catchy song. I mean, it's it's iconic stuff. You'll always see it ranked as like the best songs that influence rock and roll and all that kind of stuff. But uh, the second album, More Songs and Buildings and Food in 78, had one of your most iconic ones, which is Take Me to the River. Now, I'm going to sort of uh, date myself, or I guess whatever the young version of un- underdate myself, but I first heard this, <laughs> you're going to laugh, as a singing fish on a wall at my grandparents. <laughs> oh, yes, yes. I remember that fish. You probably get royalties from that or at least i hope you do but tell me about the original version of that that's probably what you know new generations have probably first been introduced to but of course the actual song itself is is iconic so uh you know yeah who who wrote that how was it like recording that in the studio so well i think we get royalties in seafood (laughs) nice (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah um well it was written by al green and teeny hodges uh, the Hodges were the high high rhythm uh, uh, group in Memphis, who I ended up working with when I made the movie about Memphis. There, there's the Reverend Charles Hodges, Leroy Hodges, who plays organ, Leroy Hodges, who plays bass, and then Teeny, who played guitar, but who was the most prolific as a songwriter. And they, had, Talking Heads, knew the song and were big fans of Al Green. And I think the interesting thing is is that David taught me the song and I never went and listened to the original. I just learned it. It's one of those few songs where, which is really dominated by keyboards of Talking Heads. And we sort of changed the rhythm of the song. I have now played it with the Hodges brothers on uh, shows uh, where we, after the screening of the movie, we would play. And, their whole thing is on this kind of upbeat, whereas Chris is playing this kind of march, and it's like we're playing it, like you know, it's like you could march when you're doing it. So it's a very didactic um, presentation. And interestingly, when we released it, Brian Ferry had released it, Foghat had released it. Whoa. And Levon Helm had released it. So it was a race between these four versions of the song. And fortunately, we prevailed. And also, we that that song broke at AM radio, not FM radio. Really? Yes. I, thank you. I had no, I, A, I'd forgotten that it was an Al Green original, a legend. But B, I didn't realize that there was all those other simultaneous, including Foghat and the rest. That's That's gold. <laughs> Thanks. That's hilarious. Yeah. It really was, you know, how did this happen? We, in fact, <laughs> even did a show at the bottom line where both Brian Ferry and opening for Brian Ferry and he performed great, Take Me the River, and then we did. <laughs> that, that is great. Everybody has a version of it. Uh, well, the third album, Fear of the Music, Life During Wartime. Uh, we're listening to it. It's just this visual storytelling in our brains. We can see this revolutionary hiding in this cemetery, this like apocalyptic yes landscape uh what well obviously you know it was after vietnam so life during wartime it's not really an echo of that but like you know how did how did the idea to come up to do this apocalyptic thing well i I think that that song to a degree was was a little bit like more like what the weatherman would be thinking Mm. you know someone who was underground I, i think it's pretty appropriate to a lot of the uh 
what's going on right now in the country, <laughs> unfortunately. Oh. Um, but I think that David's lyrics on that, I sing that song on our show, and cool. lyrics are just so wonderful. I mean, they are just so... So anyway, yes, Life During Wartime is some of the most fabulous lyrics. I mean, the the the... You know, and I think if you've ever seen on the album that it's uh, the lyrics, there are more lyrics than are on the, uh, that are sung. It's as if the lyrics could go on and on and on. And I think it's a very clever song and, and, and really great. So let's, so let's, going from there, uh, Speaking in Tongues is obviously Burning Down the House and perhaps... Uh, Oh wait, Remain in Light was before that, right? With Once oh, yeah, in a yeah. Lifetime. I, yeah. I thought, yeah, well, I thought we'd already talked about Remain in Light, but okay, yes, Once in a Lifetime is, you know, I think that that song also came alive because of some of the movies it was in. I think Down and Out and Beverly Hills. Right. It just so perfectly captured the, you know, the sort of contrast between Jeff Bridges and uh, um, Bette Midler's life. But uh, it, it's a terrific song, and it, it has a kind of you know, it's like you're underwater a little bit, and and these choruses singing. I, you know, it's one. It really is. You know, probably my favorite talking head album. But everyone's going to get to see that, and we, you know, uh, when we come on play with play in Washington. Awesome. And do you do you have a second to just give me something on burning down the house off of speaking in tongues? Because I mean, the Jonathan Demi uh, stop making sense. I think was during for that tour, I believe. But well, any just real quick about burning down the house. I I would love to hear. I think your drummer heard the heard people shouting it at a Parliament Funkadelic show. Yes, yes, that's what I understand. Yes, and I understand that it's a it's a favorite in 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 uh you know restaurant kitchens. <laughs> Because they're all sitting there in like about 120 degrees out heat, slaving away, and they play that, and that's it helps keep them going. That's hilarious. Well, you've been more than generous with your time. I will invite our other listeners to, you know, keep doing a deeper dive on all the other albums because And She Was is also so catchy and in movies like you're saying and Wild Wildlife off of True Stories, the album Naked had nothing but flowers. And then the everyone check out the Vim Vendors movie Until the End of the World. Uh, you had some soundtrack. Uh, that's right. And that's, a, that's a great song. And of course, this must be the place has become like a lot of it's like the theme song of a lot of weddings. So really great it's really been a pleasure to talk to you i'm sorry we're getting kind of cut off a little bit but uh really looking forward to coming to washington i have friends there that will be coming so see see you then absolutely everybody rock and roll hall of famer jerry harrison of talking heads coming to lincoln theater thursday june 22nd get your tickets hey thanks so much for doing this you bet bye-bye Thanks so much for joining us on Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. Remember to hit the subscribe button and give us a five-star rating if you like what you hear. We'll see you next time.